0: Welcome to another episode of 99th Episode, the episodic podcast with many episodes to listen to.
1: i an older They're nice nice, that books, they're that in good shape. And I was able to get him two different Chelsea Silverstein books for $10 instead of one new one for $14, which even that would be a good deal because cover price, they're $20. That's why I love Bull news. But anyway, so he gets that, uh, and I'm looking around at the manga and graphic novels and stuff. Like, I'm going to get something. I don't know what. Like, as long as I find something that I actually want, I'm going to get something. And I remembered you talked about the, the story. Um, what's the title of the story? It's The Enigma of Amigara Fault. Thank you. That's
0: I forgot to remember that. Yeah, that's um, a, so, it's yeah. a tough title. <laughs>
1: it took me a couple
0: times looking it up
1: before I remembered You told me about that story, uh, and obviously we haven't talked about it before in some lost episode of this podcast, so this will be the first time we talk about it. It it sounded very intriguing, and I've loved Jinji Ito so far. I've only read the one book. I read Uzumaki. I've gotten Tomie that you've read based off of your feedback on it, but just in general, the feedback I've gotten from Jinji Ito is so good that I figure everything is worth a risk, so... Yeah, I picked that one up, and uh, I read just that one story last night. I wanted to read more, but I just really, I guess I just wasn't in the mood for reading last night. But I did that one.
0: I've been slowly, or I guess actually it might be fairly quickly, picking up all the short story collections of Junji Ito, the actual hardcover books. Because I figure with something like a short story, it's something I'm more likely to want to revisit and so I figured that the short stories would be the Junji Ito that actually ends up on my bookshelf in hardcover format rather than Tomie and Umizaki. And I think there's another one long form that he did that I just got those digitally. So I've got those waiting for me in the ether whenever I'm ready yeah. for
1: them. And that's definitely a good line. I, I decided to get them all physically. And I think part of the reason is that um, like Uzumaki, I've already lent out to people. I I know oh, people yeah. who like them, mm-hmm. so I'm like, you know, I like these. I think I'd rather just bone out the extra money and get them, you know, physically so I can look at them whenever I want to also.
0: Yeah, so one of our lost episodes, we talked a little bit about this story, the Enigma of Amigara Fault, and I think this is one of the most well-known Junji Ito stories, so I think I'll recap it a little bit for those listening who haven't read it, or at least what the premise is, and then I've I've got a, a couple questions that I want to run by you that we kind of sounds... discussed last time, but I want to revisit them.
1: What last time? That doesn't exist. Oh, exactly, exactly. So, stop referring to these things that didn't happen. Oh, they happened, Paul. They mattered to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so
0: this story starts with a young man who's hiking up in the mountains. And as he's hiking, he comes across a a young lady and who's also up hiking in the mountains. And what they find as they're talking is that they're both hiking to the same place, which is something they saw on the news, which is that a earthquake or something like that opened up a fault line in this mountain and exposed a sheer portion of the rock face. And this rock face has carved into it holes that are the silhouette of people so they basically look like the shadow of a person carved straight down into the rock and both of them start to talk about how they feel like they were compelled to go search these out after they saw them on the news and they finally arrive at this fault and they find that there's hundreds of people there already looking around this thing, who all somehow feel compelled to go search this out for whatever reason. They, they saw it on the news and they just felt like, I have to go to this. And eventually, one person like exclaims and starts yelling that this hole is shaped exactly like me. Like this this hole, it was made for me. It's, it's I, my body lines up perfectly with this hole in the rock. And so he takes off all his clothes and he says, I'm going in. And everyone's like, no, 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 you can't go in. You can't go in. We don't know what's in there. And he says, I'm doing it. And he essentially puts his body into this person-shaped hole in the rock and just slides down into the rock and then can't be saved. He's essentially lost to everybody. Nobody knows what happens to him as he disappears into this mountain. So the two protagonists of the story, this young man and this young woman that met on the hike there, they start to develop a bit of a a love story between them. But at the same time, they have this compelling feeling like they need to go find the hole that is shaped like them so that they can go into it. And the the young lady is more so, the one who is drawn by this. She finds the hole that is shaped like her, and she exclaims, I, "I have to go! I have to go to my hole!" And the 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 guy's like, "No, just stay with me. Don't go into the hole. It's going to be okay." He Even fills up her hole with rocks so that she can't actually go into it. Meanwhile, more people are starting to find the holes that are shaped like them. And entering these holes and never to be seen again. And they don't really know what's happening to everybody still. So eventually the lady disappears and this, this guy runs out to her hole and finds that all the rocks are removed. And apparently she, in the middle of the night, w- went into her hole and uh, disappeared into the mountain. And at the same time, he then finds the hole that is shaped exactly like him. And so he then has this horrible compulsion to do the same thing. I think that's where I'm going to stop the recap because uh, uh, I think uh, a lot of the story hinges on what happens to him once he finds the hole shaped like himself and also what happens when people discover what is on the other side of these holes on the other side of the mountain like where does this hole end and what happens to the people that go through these holes
1: he also had two dreams that basically warned him of the um the evil nature of these holes and he still like he didn't see those as warnings yeah so what are your questions
0: well so it's a really horrifying story when you think about what happens to these people. Once they go in the hole, it's basically shaped exactly like their profile. So they can't move. Once they go in the hole, it becomes impossible to actually move because it it's they're basically completely restricted on their sides and have no ability to move any way but forward or backwards. And they kind of explain in the story that... Any movement just pushes you further down into the hole rather than helps you get back out. So it's, it's a one-way trip. Once you go in, you're stuck in here, and then you are completely just surrounded by this rock, unable to move. And so that is pretty darn horrifying. So there's this horror aspect that comes from this book just from... The, the what it is, and I imagine if I was in that situation, how horrific it would feel and how scary it would feel to be stuck like that and basically not know what's going to happen to you as you can't eat, you can't drink, you can't move, you can't do anything. It's It's just because of this hole you've gone down into. And so I think it operates at this horror level of just, wow, this is actually a really horrible thing that exists and these people are being compulsed to do for some unknown reason. But then I think the story also can be read a being about loneliness or depression and isolating yourself from other people and what happens to you when you isolate yourself from other people rather than rely on other people to help you. And I don't know if Junji Ito meant for that reading to be in the story, but I feel like it's it's a pretty obvious uh, reading of the story, is this kind of it being a metaphor for something else. So I was just curious if if you thought, does it does it seem like it's written to be a metaphor? And if it's not, then should you even take it as a metaphor or, or not? Like, you know, it's does. is it possible? The story means more than it was intended to, or, and if it does, is that how you should read it? Or should you just go with the author's intent of, well, this is just a a weird horror story I thought of. And any relation to any actual psycho trauma is purely coincidental. I'm just, curious about your thoughts on that
1: one thing in the story is uh the the guy does tell the girl very directly that it's because of her loneliness that she's compelled to do this so like he does call it out that it is uh, a a relation to loneliness so i think that the the depth that it goes goes beyond just stating like you know you're alone like i mean it was just that girl specifically like he told her she told him, nobody ever wanted me. My parents didn't care about me. And he says, you know, it's your loneliness that makes you want to find this hole. So, I mean, it, it is clearly saying there that this is like an allegory for, for like, uh, belonging to yourself, I guess. Uh, you know, the hole is obviously for one person, but it's meant for you. So, like, that's your place of belonging that's just yours. I think that you can dig deeper and say that, like, it's an allegory for... Um, Like possibly even for suicide, you know that if you go in the hole, you don't know for sure what's going to happen, but you know you're going in and you're not getting out. It's safe to guess that you're going to die. And, you know, maybe it's a a comparison between, you know, if you do feel like you have no hope and no choice and you are going to kill yourself, you don't know what's on the other side of killing yourself. You don't know if there's nothingness. You don't know if there's heaven or hell. Um, I think there's a lot that can be read into with the story a lot that uh, can be taken out of it and i think it's the difference between uh, a creator who is creating something that has deeper layers like if you try to purposefully create these layers usually you can see the work you know you can you can see the 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 pieces and it just doesn't feel as genuine and i think with like this is a good example of when you make something that there's um There's a lot of genuine meaning behind it, even if it's not intended by the creator. The meaning is more impactful and deep. It's going to resonate with the people who have something to relate to with it in some way, and people who maybe their mind isn't in those areas at all. It might not like they might it might go right over their head. So, like you and I reading it, I'm not saying that like you and I are you know trying to find a hole to crawl into and die, but. I think they were both people who tend to be but very... But we're also um,
0: not necessarily not looking for a hole to crawl into and die, if you know what I mean.
1: <laughs> I mean, I have been looking for one shaped like
0: me, you know, just
1: just right. If I find um, the right
0: price, I'm, I'm probably going to pull the trigger.
1: But I, I think that you and I are both empathetic people that think a lot about how, uh, how other people are feeling. And I think that that's one way that this could, you know, like I think you and I might be more likely than... Um, than the average person to like find deeper meaning in stories like this because we're thinking more about how the people are feeling than just about the actions going on. But yeah, I, I mean, it ultimately I don't think it matters whether or not Jinji Ito meant for the depth of meaning that that we can dig out of this to be there. It's there. Like just looking at the different things he's created and talking about the stories, like he's not trying to create very surface level stories. I'm reading another horror manga that was, uh, recommended to me, uh, called Drifting Classroom. Hmm. Okay. And it's good. It's interesting, but it's just, it's not as good as, um, as Uzumaki was. It feels much more surface level. Uh, it's about a classroom that something crazy happens and in the normal world, they just think there was an explosion and the whole school is gone. So it's is school, not just a classroom. I, I misspoke. It's called Drifting Classroom, though. Uh, and in where, like, where the classroom goes, it's like they're in a, a, a just like a void of kind of nothingness. It's just like sand outside of where the school is. Like the the first volume is like eight hundred pages, and I'm two hundred pages into it. And there's three volumes of it, so I got a lot of story to go. But I do like it enough that I picked up um, the second two volumes on a comiXology cell. So that way I could read the whole thing and get it cheaper than having to buy physical copies of them. Um, but yeah, like that one, yeah, I could probably suss out some deeper meaning reading it, but Junji Ito's work is just dripping that meaning, you know? So there's like a there's a big difference there.
0: I, I guess what wasn't clear to me is how did Junji Ito come uh, come to this? Did he come of it th- to it with this idea of, man, this just seems like a really horrific thing to have happened to a person? Or did he come to it with, this seems like a very apt metaphor for um, loneliness or suicide or depression? I'm not really sure. And I guess it doesn't really matter. And uh, that seems to be y- your thesis. And I think that that's if, if there's accidental meaning in something, then that's better, right? I mean, <laughs> that's all good. It's I, I've just kind of it's something I kind of wrestle with is you know how much does the author's intention matter versus how much does just your own interpretation matter on something?
1: Yeah, I think it comes down to to some extent to like a, a g- trying to genuinely portray something. Like in this, I do think he was genuinely trying to have a horror story that was centered around loneliness. And I think that because he specifically called out loneliness in it. Um, and I think the genuine betrayal makes the the meanings deeper uh, because it's not just, you know, him deciding, well, well this means loneliness. I'm going to do this and it's going to be horrific. And, like, that's the surface of it. And he just has a bunch of people running and jumping into holes and then, you know, coming out as monsters. And then these, like, whole monsters are running around or something. You know, it's like you, you could yeah. take the. <laughs> yeah, you that could take the. the, the yeah, you could, like, you could take that and be very, very surface level with it. And I don't think that he is, even though I think that he was starting from the point of wanting to have a story about loneliness, you know? Yeah, and I I mean, to your, the point you just said, where if you're not trying to have the meaning, it might make it better. I think it's just, it comes down to like how genuine the author is in what they're doing. When you're trying to force something, it doesn't come out as good. And when you're just genuinely trying to portray something, it comes out differently, you know?
0: Yeah, I think that goes back to what we were talking about last week with uh, Sandman and Neil Gaiman and his writing. I don't think he sets out trying to specifically write something with a specific meaning. Like the Doll's House, I don't think has a specific interpretation about here's what Neil Gaiman is trying to say, quote unquote, with this. It feels more like he's he sets out to write a story that has a lot of truthfulness in the experiences that everyone goes through. And in that way, then it allows for multiple meanings to be extracted from it.
1: On Twitter yesterday, I saw um, he tweeted in response to something that another comic, I think he was responding to Kurt Busiek or something like that. But he tweeted that he was confused by seeing people on Twitter express concern about the same man TV show that's coming to Netflix, express concern that it was going to be full of LGBTQ characters. (laughs) <laughs> and, yeah, and so, I mean, he kind of let it hang there, because, obviously, if you if you know Sandman at all, it's full of LGBTQ characters. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I just, uh, I, I think that it just goes to show, too, like, the genuineness. Like, he's portrayed those characters in his work, um, not because back in the, uh, wait, when did Sandman start? Was it the late 80s? Yeah, late 80s. I think yeah. 1988. Okay, yeah, so, like, late 80s, it's not like he was wanting to put them in there because it was edgy. Uh, or he wanted to like you know fit in niche parts of society that were not well known he just wanted to represent those characters, you know I mean, I think it was very genuine on his part, and that's why it comes across um you know even twenty plus years later, it doesn't come across as um you know exploitative it comes across as these are just the characters it doesn't
0: feel like a story about gay characters either it feels like a a story about characters and some of them are lbgtq and that's just kind of how it goes i do remember though it uh definitely uh ruffled some feathers back then because um I remember reading a lot of the letters columns, and especially after the Game of You arc, there was a lot of huffing and puffing by probably very in- indignant, morally righteous people about how that's something that is a sin and shouldn't be portrayed in comics, blah, 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 and, and all that usual crap. And... um There was a a lot of stuff that I remember seeing written about it in the letters columns, Um, because when I started buying Sandman in individual issues back then, it was just shortly after that story arc. So it was kind of interesting in that I saw some of the fallout play out from that, but I never actually read the story until uh, later when I was an adult. But yeah, that is kind of an odd statement saying it's going to be full of those characters. Like, well, yeah, of course it is. It's also going to be full of regular character, not regular. Regular is the wrong word. It's going to be full of like straight characters too, because there's tons of those in the story. Also, like, it's uh, it's it's very bizarre. I think. Yeah. You know? um,
1: it's funny to me the self righteousness of people that I don't want to be exposed to this thing, so I'm going to call it bad, but. If you take that away, Sandman is still a story that if on religious grounds you're saying this shouldn't be in there, you also still shouldn't be reading Sandman. There's profanity. There's excessive violence. There's lots of horrible things that if if your sensitivities are hurt, you should not be reading it.
0: It portrays Satan as a pretty... Like, understandable and relatable and sympathetic character. Like, yeah, it's like he's the nicest
1: of the leaders of hell, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. And if, if that's your issue, then whoa, there is a whole, whole lot to be upset about. Um, so it's, it's very, yeah, it seems more, a relic of the cultural war than of people's actual thoughts and beliefs.
1: A tangential story on hypocrisy. Uh, yesterday, I, on Twitter, saw somebody I just started following that sells cards that um, does certain deal, whatever, you know. So, so I started following this guy, whatever, don't really pay attention. But then he's tweeting yesterday, he's getting trolled by somebody because he said he wouldn't use a certain retailer because they um, are taking months to ship. That's all he said. This other person wasn't even tagged in it, but this other person starts attacking him. Like, you know, total troll behavior. So, like, that's kind of one thing. But I kind of read it out because it was kind of funny. And because he wasn't really, like, giving in to the, the troll. And it was just kind of funny to see somebody not, like, get pissed off and yell, but be like, ha-ha, you're a fool. Go away. So then one of my Twitter friends responded to it. And I was like, this reminds me of when, years ago, I called Bank of America's customer service because uh, they had changed their policies on how they did something and it screwed me. And so I call them and I'm talking to them and uh, they're not going to do anything for me. I'm like, I'm going to take my business elsewhere. And the customer service lady, and this isn't, this is like the second level customer service lady too. This isn't, isn't even just the first person you get on the phone. Cause they like, they sent me up a level mm-hmm. and I tell her like, I'm going to take my business elsewhere. And she goes, don't you threaten me? And I was like, what What? (laughs) i'm not threatening you i'm telling you i'm gonna take my business elsewhere because i don't like how i'm being treated and like now your behavior is absurd oh people are just wonderful to deal with
0: yeah i know i i wonder what the answer to that is a lot of times i don't know i think because at the same time i can see how this world does that to people
1: yeah what's it's a tough job to be in having to do that because usually you get people yelling at you and stuff like that. And, you know, you build up this defensiveness. But I mean, when you're in a, a job doing customer service like that, you can't respond like that. It's your job not to. Mm-hmm. But I also understand how that job is going to beat you up and make you end up responding like that. So, like, probably she shouldn't be in that job, but probably. Other stuff was going on that set that up. So, I mean, it's like, I, I remember it after all these years, mostly because it struck me as funny, not because I was deeply offended by it, but it was yeah. like, it's just kind of absurd, you know? So it stuck with me, but like empathetically, like it's, it's sad that people have to get like that. Like you should be able to have a job in customer service where you, you field phone calls when people have problems and you don't feel assaulted, but that's also why I would never have one of those jobs.
0: Well, I think the well, just, <laughs> this is getting into my <laughs> whatever, but it's like if you don't want to have a job like that, then don't work for a scumbag company that exists to rip people off. You know, it's <laughs> uh, most banks seem like their customer service is more about saying, "Well, yeah, I'm sorry, you can't. That's our policy." Uh, suck an egg. Than it is about actually helping people because that's what banks are about because of our uh, cultural worship of the almighty prophet. But
1: yeah, that's getting into like my rage at the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, people end up in jobs a lot like that a lot of times because they just they fall into the job, you know, and that happens. And it's, it's easy to say, well, if you don't want to deal with it, just don't do it. Obviously, we both know that. I mean, my job, uh, which I don't like to specifically talk about on uh, the podcast, but my job is dealing with people, and it's something that sometimes I'd rather not do. But there's a lot of reasons why I'm still at my job. And a lot of them are good reasons too. Like I like my job, and there's a lot of positive about it, but there's a lot of you know difficult stuff to deal with too. But still, if I had stumbled into a job like that seventeen years ago instead of the job that I have, I could find myself, you know, deeply embedded in something that I didn't have an easy way out of because I still have to support my family and stuff like that. So yeah. It's, it's tough.
0: Yeah, it's very tough. This is not a
1: forgiving world. As we know by people wanting to find a hole ship like them to crawl into.
0: I know, right? It's, the more you think about it, the more you think, eh, might be nice in that hole. <laughs> so
1: Yeah, like you ever yeah. look at a dog or something just be like, man... If I could just be a dog for a day, that'd be nice. Not worry about anything except eating and pooping. Oh, my freaking cat. (laughs)
0: Like, here's what my cat does. My cat sits around on the windowsill for a while, then takes a nap, then yells for some food, and it magically appears in front of him. And then he walks around a little bit, acts like a little brat and then gets maybe petted or scratched a little bit, takes another nap, eats a little more food, sits around in the sun, does jack. It's uh, such a cush life our little cat has. (laughs) It's, It's like the biggest thing it has to do is catch little bugs when they get in the house, and that's like its most exciting moments of the day is, oh, a grasshopper or something got in the house, a little cricket got in the house time to get into action and otherwise it's just all sleep
1: exactly our cat likes to bait us to chase her sometimes by annoying us with like meowing and hovering around us and stuff and then we'll chase her because we know that's what she wants and then she gets tired and just wants to plop down and the funniest is like she'll be running and literally just plop down in the middle of the floor and what's really funny is we don't stop chasing her because she does that and then she's like has this reaction like what are you doing (laughs) and gets up and uh runs again it's like, no, if, you, if you're going to uh, harass us into chasing you, you're going to get chased until you actually get away from us.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like when cats want to be petted three times and then they break out the claws after that.
1: Yeah, nope, this yep. is done. We're, we're done here.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, man. So one thing I did a couple nights ago uh, is I watched a Bruce Lee movie for the first time. Cool. Which one? The Big Boss, his first movie. So I. I it was kind of funny because I – I texted my cousin, and I, I figured he was probably a Bruce Lee fan because I, I know what you know what he tends to like. He said, "Yeah," and um, I said, "Oh, I got a box set of Bruce Lee movies." And he said, "Oh, which ones does I have?" And I listed them. He's like, "Oh, so it has all of them, basically." I have no idea how many movies Bruce Lee did. So then I Google, and it says he's done like twenty movies. So I'm like, "Uh, I don't, I don't know. Like, it's not all of them. I guess you could say that." So, like, I do a little bit more searching, and he basically did five that mattered, because some were when he was, like, a child actor or whatever. Um, So, he has five movies that were, like, the ones that mattered for him. And he died very young. He died at 32, which I think we all know that he died young. I don't think I ever really thought much about how young he died, but, like, now 32 sounds much younger to me than it did, you know, 15 years years ago ago when I was 22, you know? So... Yeah, I had never watched a Bruce Lee movie. Like, it's one of those things we're always exposed to to certain things, so we have a level of familiarity. But, like, watching this movie, I had no familiarity with, like, the story of the movie or anything. Probably a couple of his mannerisms kind of made sense to me. From, you know, just from, like, whatever parody or whatever I've seen over the years. But until you, like, you actually stop and, and, you know, watch something like this, like, you don't really get that much about it. And it's definitely the type of movie that I wouldn't have been in the position to enjoy some time ago. I had a hard, like, I I really didn't care much for watching older movies uh, until recently. And just like, you know, we talked about the difficulty getting into reading older X-Men comics, like comics from the 70s and 80s and so on. You got to get used to it. You got to know what you're looking at and why it's good. You know, like you compare the art to a comic from the 70s to a comic from today, and if you're just like flashing, you know, showing them to somebody who doesn't read comics, they're going to say that the art in the current comics is much better, most likely, because it's, you know, it's clearer. It, they, there's more things they can do. It um, it looks crisper. It looks, you know, like art nowadays is a lot more uh, enticing at the most surface level, Right. It's kind of like that with movies. Better quality filming, uh, special effects. uh, I mean, even the music. Like, you know, music of movies in the 70s is really dated now. And it's not like it's just as timeless music qualities in movies, right?
0: Yeah. The one movie I think of a lot when I think of that is um, Bullet, the Steve McQueen movie. From (laughs) the late 60s. Where it's like a classic of action, whatever rough-and-tumble good guy out to somehow solve the crime, even though he's a loner, blah, blah, blah. It's very kind of... Um, uh, I can't think of the right word, but it's very much of a prototype for many types of characters and movies that have come after it. But watching that movie, it is so slow-paced, and even the fast, exciting car chase, by today's standards, is just so slow-paced and kind of clunky. And it's uh, very interesting how different it is from uh, movie telling standards of today.
1: Yeah. And so you have to like, get yourself in a place to be able to watch those things. They're very different. So it's not like your, your brain doesn't naturally process it the same way. And I think, you know, we all know that nowadays, we have so many things that's fed us at such a frantic pace that, Like, I know for myself, I'm trying to fight against that. I'm trying to do more things that aren't that, like, you know, two seconds until gratification. Like, I I want to watch a movie that I gotta pay attention to, rather than one that is just, like, constantly paying off. Uh, Pretty pretty much everything is that way, you know? It's like, I mean, my son's a good example. Like, he likes watching YouTube videos, and it's just like drinking syrup compared to, like, eating uh, a cookie, you know? Like... Syrup is 100% pure liquid sugar, and you get it quickly, you know? That cookie Mm -hmm. takes more work, and, like, those chocolate chips aren't in every single square, you know, centimeter of it. It's like that with everything, and I think it's really good for us to do things that slow us down and make us process things properly. It's like you can't eat cookies all day. Um, you got to eat things like, uh, whole grains that compared to a cookie is hard work and tastes like crap, right? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So, but you got to put the work in when you get used to eating those things. They're, they're not bad and you can actually enjoy them. And when you really put the work in, you enjoy them more than you would a cookie because you, you get used to them and you learn how to enjoy them more and things like that. So I, I think like watching an old movie is the same thing like that as far as like mentally what we're putting into our brains. So it was really interesting watching it. Uh, I really did enjoy it. I definitely have worked myself into the place where I can watch movies that aren't what I'm used to watching. And it also helps that I don't really watch many movies nowadays. So it's not like I'm used to the pacing of modern movies and then I try to throw in an old one every once in a while. I actually watch more old ones now than modern ones, especially since there's nothing new coming out. Yeah, so I I really enjoyed it. Um, One thing that I liked about it is... There was quite a bit of fighting in it before Bruce Lee actually fought. I have no idea if going into that movie, if he was already, uh, you know, super well known. I kind of would have to guess like he probably was, because I know that he was, it's not like he made five movies in a short span of years and then died and then he got famous. Like he was famous, you know, so he had to have gone into these already having that fame. It, it kind of um, shows in the movie, too, like how the movie was structured. So, like, there's fighting before he starts fighting. When he finally starts fighting, like, it feels like a payoff in the movie, not just, like, more fighting. Um, cool. But also, like, the other fighting was obviously less skillful. Like, it was done well, but it was obviously, like, choreographed, not as crisp and stuff. But then, like, when he fights, like, it just, like, jumps up to another level of how, how good and solid it looks, you know? So, long story short, um, I enjoyed it. I didn't know exactly what to expect, but I'm looking forward to watching the rest of the the collection, and I'm actually really interested in learning more about Bruce Lee, too. So, I know they made a movie about his life that I'll probably watch, and um, probably stick out a biography, something like that.
0: I think I've only seen one Bruce Lee movie, and I can't even remember which one it was. I think there was probably one on Netflix at some point that... I watched and I I don't really remember and it was I think just a typical Bruce Lee has to go and get revenge on against some evil crime lord type of movie which seems like that's what most of his movies are if I understand right but I, I could be totally wrong about that
1: pretty much I mean I I've only watched the one so far but a lot of uh you know genre movies are you know they're they're, they're the genre you know it's mm-hmm. yeah it, yeah so anyways it was a good movie it was enjoyable and now we shall call it a day
0: okay all right well uh let's uh pull the emergency ejection cord on this one find us on twitter find more episodes and bada boom bada bing we're off to the races and done thanks for tuning into this short episode
1: (laughs) all right catch you later